episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Gusto. Modern, easy payroll benefits for small businesses across the country. And because you're a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. Find out at gusto.com slash tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Dance and my guest today is Alex Osterwalder. He's a Swiss business theorist, author, speaker, consultant, and entrepreneur known for his work on business modeling and the development of the business model canvas. In fact, there's an entire series of books that kind of come off of that business modeling idea. Today, we're going to talk about one of his latest called Testing Business Ideas. So Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first about the entire series. Um, there, the, this is book number three, I think, after Business Model Canvas, and you've got another one in the works. Did you, did you plan the entire series? Do these books build on each other? How do, how do you think about the series? Good, good question. You know, th- what we always ask ourselves before we write another book is, you know, does the world really need another business book? There's so many <laughs> out there. Another one, right? Because um, there, there are literally thousands of books that come out every year on top of, you know, there's about 1 million business books out there, including biographies. So when we only write a new book, when we believe there is a need for it from the you know work we do in the field, we can see which problems remain un, unsolved. Um, and then the first thing we do is we try to create a business tool, the right processes, and then the book comes around that to address that particular thing. So the beginning was about business models because there was a need for something practical in the space of you know, designing and testing your business models. Then the second one is, was around value propositions because we see, we've seen that people are not able to deal with how they actually create value with products and services. Then we wrote testing business ideas because the foundation was great. You know, Steve Blank launched this whole movement and then Eric Ries made it popular. But we believe that, okay, there's another level now. We can professionalize the whole testing space by creating a library of experiments so we kind of push the boundaries always when we see there's something there that the market still needs. And the last one, which is going to come out um, in April, is all about uh, the invincible company. So that's for the for this more senior leadership level um, and including a, a new kind of chapter on business models because people are still not very good with business models. You know, everybody competes on technologies, products, and services, and that's a lost game. You can only lose that game, right? You really have to understand how to design superior business models. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to stay ahead of everybody else. You know, one of my favorite things about the entire series of books is, is, is the visual nature of them. You know, the color coding for wayfinding and things, particularly in this last book, Testing Business Ideas, you just flip to the blue section and you know, you know where you are. Um, is that something, I'm curious if that's something you tested. So, you know, initially when we started out, that was pre, you know, I, I have, I didn't know Steve Blank when we wrote the first book that came afterwards. We were in the design thinking space, right? So the visual was for us natural because it came from design thinking. So we kind of mix pe- things together, visual thinking, design thinking, and business thinking. Um, but basically at the very beginning, it's now 10 years ago, and even with Eve, my co-author, we've been working together for 20 years. We just do the stuff we enjoy. And we felt like there are not enough visual books out there. So guess what? We created a visual book. So we took ourselves as an initial customer segment. And then, of course, we did test. You know, it's from the beginning, even without, there was no methodology, but we just tested. So the first thing we did 
is co-create the first book with 470. We call them co-authors, but de facto they were giving us feedback. You know, what did you like? What did they like, and what did they not like? So testing for us was always part of the journey. And in the first book, people even paid us <laughs> to be part of the project. So we learned a ton. And you know, they would tell us, "Oh, this doesn't work. This is too theoretical." And I think if you don't test. You know, you're you're at risk. You become arrogant. You're at risk of creating something nobody wants. So it it should be when it comes to new ideas, it should be in your DNA. When you're building a new factory and you have done it ten times, of course, testing is not the right thing. Planning is the right thing, right? So it always depends on on what you're doing if you need to test or not. Testing is not always mandatory, but in innovation, it is because otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of time, energy, and money. Yeah, I know. I know when I wrote my first book um, about 12 years ago, uh, I had been blogging for four or five years and a lot of that content that people responded to very favorably found its way into the book. And I maybe didn't think of it as a testing ground, but that's certainly what I was doing. It, it definitely is. And, you know, if you want the whole work that we've been doing at the very beginning, you know, I did a PhD, a doctoral dissertation on the topic, and nobody reads PhDs. Well, it turns out when I put it online, people started to download it, right? So it's based on these weak signals that we started to understand what do business people need? And we we just doubled down on all of the things that worked. And guess what? You know, now it looks brilliant. Oh, these guys, they did something brilliant. But nobody sees the number of failures and humiliation <laughs> that we went through. And the number of times that people told me, oh, visual book, you're crazy. That's stupid. Nobody's going to buy that with a business book that's visual. Who needs that? Nobody does that. Well, turns out, yeah, nobody does that. Even our publisher said, if you had pitched that idea to us, we would have said, no, 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 no. You're doing everything wrong. But the good news is we self-published so we could do whatever we wanted and we could prove, you know, that. and, and that's the whole nature of innovation you don't repeat what others do. You try something else. But when you truly innovate, you're not going to get it right the first time. And if you get it right the first time, you're probably not innovating. Yeah. 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 I'm sure your publisher doesn't ask uh, now, do they? Um. <laughs> now they're happy. Yeah. Now they start reading yeah, the books and they, and they say, oh, we probably should reinvent our own business model yeah. as well. No kidding. So, what, you know, when we talk about testing, you know, you're really talking about experimenting a lot, like almost like high school chemistry. Uh, I had a high school chemistry teacher, Mr. Adams, that was one of the first people that uh, that really got me to see the idea of you can't just believe your hypothesis. <laughs> you know, you have to test it. So in a lot of ways, that's kind of what it looks like, isn't it? It's it's absolutely. No, absolutely. And I like the fact that you I've never seen it that way. I like the fact that you said high school chemistry, because if we say, or oh, like testing like a scientist or a pharmaceutical company, we get too rigorous, right? So it's not, it's just the right level of scientific approach. Not too much, not too little. I think right now we're still a little bit on the too little approach. It's an ideology, right? Oh, we're going to do lean start. We're going to test ideas. Okay, so what did you do? Yeah, we vaguely talked to four or five people. Did you have a hypothesis? No, not really. Uh, we just built something and showed it to people. That's not good enough anymore. That used to be good enough, but now this whole thing is becoming professional. And we actually know how to measure the reduction of risk and uncertainty related to all of the hypotheses you have underlying an idea. So that means we now need to be a little bit more professional so we can measure these things and we can show either to investors or to management 
that we're doing this systematically. So it, it, this is turning from you know, the Wild West <laughs> to almost to a boring thing. It, it's, innovation is resembling accounting a little bit more. And I'm not saying you still need creativity. You still need vision. But you also need a rigorous approach. So people think there's these myths in innovation. Oh, innovation is all about the creative genius. No, it's not. There is part of that, the creative team that is able to break through the boundaries of tri traditional doing things. But there's also a pretty rigorous approach to test and adapt, right? And, and that part people underestimate. In particular, you know, in companies, if you don't build that, you're not going to get a really good and, and, and de-risked approach to, to new ideas. You're, you're going to rely on a couple of people, you know, still pitching you slide decks and, and, and uh, spreadsheets. We, we're now we need to be a bit more sophisticated. So it's like um, the testing, the experimentation, the lean startup movement is growing up. Now we need to be professional. Anecdotes and ideology is not good enough anymore. Yeah, and, and I suspect that there is a fair amount of, of um, stunning innovation that comes out of failed hypothesis. Yeah, and, and you know, what you think works uh, usually doesn't. And I like how, how Rita McGrath, a, a colleague and friend of mine, phrases it. She says at the early stages... You can't distinguish a good and a bad idea. What looks good on paper might be a terrible idea because you can always make the spreadsheet and the PowerPoint look good. There's numerous ideas. You know, the history is littered with great ideas. So what you want is not a great idea. You want a testable idea. And that's where you need to get a little bit more systematic and scientific by first defining what are the hypotheses underlying your idea? And then you systematically pick one after the other and you de-risk it. And if you're wrong, that's okay because you will move into a different direction. So creativity is not just at the beginning. It's all the time because the hard part is not the idea. Ideas don't matter. Ideas are free. They're everywhere. What is really difficult is turning an idea into a value proposition that customers care about and a business model that can scale. And that we now can do with a systematic approach, an approach that won't stifle creativity, but will actually leverage it, right? Because you will spend your time on, you, know, you won't waste it on stuff that's not going to work. So the hypothesis is the fundamental aspect that we need to define before testing our ideas. So you and I are recording this in uh, middle of April in 2020. There is a lot going on in the world right now. Uh, the business world is, you know, somewhat in, in a chaotic state, which actually I think for some people, is a very very good environment for innovation, but uh, how would you how would you uh, consult with people or advise people on testing, particularly customer discovery kind of testing in this environment? So, you know, some people think, oh, now you know we need to make big and bold bets, and we don't need to test. It's actually quite the contrary, and and, and it's funny because people misunderstand. So I was writing this tweet, you know, that we even though the time frame is condensed and we need to create stuff much faster, we still need to test and de-risk ideas. And then somebody wrote back, well, yeah, but we need to, we, now we need bold ideas. Well, bold idea and testing, they're not contradictions. <laughs> and and the, the only thing that really changes is speed. So you can't afford to test for four weeks, for, for 16 weeks, right? So here what is condensed is the speed of things. So you don't have the luxury of building stuff. So what do you do? You make very cheap and quick experiments. You make pricing experiments without having a physical prototype. Maybe it's just a PDF brochure that you put in front of people. You don't tell them this is, doesn't exist. And you start to understand how much are people really willing to pay. And you need to do it so much faster. So I think 
companies that have built this capability, um, either you know startups or established companies, they're flourishing now because they know exactly how to deal with uncertainty. Those who focused really, you know, 100% on, on execution, take Boeing, they're suffering like crazy because they cut out all the fat, all the ability to actually explore is gone because they did so much cost cutting, buy, buying back shares, etc. So, so some companies today are suffering because they can't deal with uncertainty. Now, of course, the environment is very special because it's like an atomic bomb hit us. So, you know, when you're in the hotel industry, you can do whatever you want. Experimentation is probably not going to save you. It's just very hard. But in other areas, you know, we see right now pharmaceutical companies are not stopping their investments at all. They're charging ahead like before because they know when they come out of this crisis, even if there's a recession, they need to build their innovation muscle. And that doesn't exist in most companies because every company does something innovation, but it's often innovation theater. You know, Steve Blank, Rita McGrath, and I, we use this word innovation theater. It's for the show. What we really need is companies that take this seriously, that strategically invest in innovation. And that's from the young company, the two, three-year-old startup that has had first success. They already need to think about their next move. All the way to the established companies like MasterCard, Nestle, Unilever, Novartis, or whatever you want. This is a muscle that is underdeveloped in most companies. Everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider? That's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal. It's modern. You might fall in love yourself. Hey, and as a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash tape. That's gusto.com slash tape. Are there kind of normal or, or big traps that people fall into in, in this testing? So they, they get really excited about, yeah, okay, we're going to do all this. Where do they mess it up? So I think one of the big myths of the whole lean startup movement and this testing movement is that you can pivot yourself to success. You can't. Sometimes you actually need to kill an idea. And the goal of testing is just to kill it faster. (laughs) And this is where companies get it wrong, is that they need to have a portfolio of projects of which they will kill many very fast. So let me give you one example. Bosch in Germany, big engineering company, over 400,000 people, They have a portfolio of 169 projects developed over three years, but they only get a small investment, 130,000 euro. After three months, they kill 70% of those projects and they only invest in 30%. Those 30% get another six months, 300,000 euro. Again, they kill 70%. So you need to invest in many projects to let the winners emerge. You can't pick the winners. Now, what does that mean for startups? It's actually the same thing. It's just that a startup doesn't develop a portfolio. They are part of a portfolio of their investors, right? So it's exactly the same thing. This is that with the startup, you're looking at one, the unit of analysis is the company and the portfolio is at the investor's level. In an established company, you need to build that portfolio. You can't pick the winner. So there's a big myth. I can, you know, if I want a big return, I need to bet big is actually quite the contrary because you're, you're, you're condensing all the risk in one bet. No, you need to make many, many small bets and then increase the bets according to the evidence that people bring to the table. So 
One of the things that I love about the book is um, I think you I think the number is 44 different experiments that you kind of map out in the book. But but you you have what I would call starter experiments. And then you have if you've been doing this for a while, you know, here's how to up your game. If you really want to scale in your organization and make this like an innovation department. So. What are some of um, what are some of the core examples? So so if somebody's thinking, well, I haven't been doing this, regardless of the size of the business, you know, do you do you ever point people to say, well, here are the things you need to start testing now? So there's again, there's a couple of myths in innovation. The first one is I need to build something to test my idea. No, you don't. Right? That's a huge mistake because at the beginning, any idea, any idea, even if we're talking about you know a ship engine, something very expensive, or, or you know huge batteries for 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 um, turbines, whatever. You need to start with very cheap and fast experiments. Why is that? Because the likelihood that you're wrong is very high. So you don't want to spend you know, months on, on designing an experiment. So when people say, oh, we have a pilot, we're testing, then probably you know, the pilot is already late stage. And if you fail, you get fired from the company. So at the beginning, you need very cheap experiments. It's great to do interviews. It's great to do landing pages, if that makes sense. But then very quickly, you need to move towards more sophisticated stuff. But even at the beginning in interviews, there are a couple of mistakes that people make. First, a very basic thing, people ask for opinions. Would you buy this? How much would you pay? When you ask for opinions, you get opinions and and people never do what they say. What you want to ask is, when's the last time you spent money on a similar thing? I'll pay as little as I have to, right? That's the answer. (laughs) Yeah. and, And what you ask is, When's the last time you purchased a similar item? How much did you pay? When's the last time you struggled with that? Explain it to me. So you need to ask for facts. So even interviews can get it wrong. Second thing, there are types of experiments. So let's take card sort. Very simple thing. You make a list of 20 cards with the different jobs, pains, and gains that you think your customer has. You put it in front of them and say, could you stack rank? What's the biggest, you know, the most important job that you have? What's the biggest pain? And that way, you already get a sense of what are the priorities of people, which is much harder in a simple interview. So by, by creating these little um, interactive experiments, you get much stronger data. But that data, all of that data is still relatively weak because it's their, still kind of their opinion. So then over time, you move to stronger experiments that resemble the real world much more. So you simulate a sales where they don't even know they're not purchasing. And say, okay, I'm being B2B. I can't simulate the sales. Well, you can do other things. You can get them to sign a, a, a document that's not legally binding, but where they have skin in the game. Because if they if they put their name on that document, maybe their their boss, you know, will see that as a very strong sign of commitment, etc. So you need to be creative in how you design experiments. So the the test subject actually has skin in the game. And the more the test subject has skin in the game the more the evidence is strong. What people say is rarely what they do. But once they have skin in the game, you know, they commit their time to a full-day workshop. They put their name under a non-legally binding document, but it's nevertheless, it's their name is physically on a document. Those are all things where they have skin in the game. And the ultimate, obviously, is the purchase, right? So you need to increase the strength of the evidence with you know, your, your certainty that you're on the right path. And you can, you can afford to pay more for an experiment and to spend more with an experiment where time when you're advancing with your, with your uh, evidence. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think I heard you say is that 
you know, one of the first places to start might be testing things you're already doing to to find out if if they're actually the the best you know use of resources or time or you know or you know you should be charging more or less. I mean that that's stuff you could do right now, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, so so when you have a value proposition, when you have a business model, nothing prevents you from improving it, right? So. So sometimes, you know, I like to say business models and value propositions expire like yogurt in the fridge. It's just that companies don't always realize that because they don't go back to the customer and retest, right? Sometimes you can actually double the price because you're under, you know, you're leaving value on the table, but you never tested it. You came up with the price through some whatever, you know, um, formula, but you never retested it. So these are things you need to go back to and, and get more certainty with evidence. So good news is if people are still buying, you know they're buying. But, you know, pricing is actually a very interesting phenomenon where you can, you can increase the top line a lot. So going back, doing pricing experiments with new customers they don't know yet, and you can, you, you can really see, could I increase the price? Could I double the price? Numerous examples like that are very powerful there's a lot of value to be captured, even in existing business models. Yeah, I think pricing is so hard because a lot of times people think, well, they just won't pay that much. And a lot of it has to do with the message is wrong. It's opinion, you know, the value right? proposition is wrong. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's opinion, and, right? And, and, and we, we, yeah, we shouldn't rely on opinion. We need to have the evidence. So good point, right? So we think it's like that, but our opinion doesn't matter. And that's the important thing. In innovation, you need to stay humble and say, I don't know. But let's let the evidence speak. It's not my opinion that decides. It's the evidence that decides from the experiments that I've done. That's very hard to do because the longer you've been in business, the more arrogant you get and you think you figured it out. But as soon as you think you figured it out, you're actually digging your own grave because that's when things are going to go wrong. Yeah, the only certainty is change. So, <laughs> so Alex, tell us, uh, give us a little preview. We are recording this, as I said, in the middle of April uh, sometime later this month, April 2020, your new book, The Invincible Company, comes out uh, as well. So depending upon when people are listening, they, they may be able to get that as well. So you want to preview that book and then uh, kind of tell us where people can find out more about your work. Yeah. So we have a tradition of giving away always part of our book. So you can you can get 100 pages for free to get a preview on our website at strategizer.com. But the, the, what we did with that book is, is, again, we asked, does the world need another book? And what we've seen is that we did quite a lot of work at the doer's level, at the project level, you know, business model canvas, testing, et cetera. What was still lacking is the toolbox and the shared language at the leadership level. So we said, you know, can we give existing companies and their leadership the blueprint to constantly reinvent their organizations? So that's how the invincible company was born. And it was born actually around the fact that the best companies in the world, they don't manage a business model. They manage a portfolio of business models, actually two portfolios. They manage what they have and they constantly improve what we just discussed. But they also have a portfolio of new things that may or may not work. So Amazon Web Services is one experiment among many that turned out to be great. But you know what? At Amazon, they like to say it's the best place in the world to fail. That's actually the CEO who says that to investors because they have a portfolio of thousands of experiments running at the same time. And the winners will emerge, right? So that's what we describe in the new book. How do you build that portfolio? That's one aspect. The second aspect, because we also wanted to create something for, you know, everybody from entrepreneurs to the doers, 
is a business model pattern library. And this helps people to break out of competing on products, price, and technology because that's, that's a lost game. You can't stay ahead with better products because you'll inevitably people will copy and it's un, it's impossible. It's even hard to stay ahead with patents, right? So we give a pattern library where on the one hand, you can create better business models around market opportunities and technologies. On this, and the second thing is that you can shift business models from one to another, from product to service, from selling stuff towards a platform. So we use that as an inspiration uh, so people can reinvent themselves. And the last part of the book is all around innovation culture. How do you build an innovation culture in your organization systematically? Yeah, and I think one uh, lesson of the last few years is just how rapidly change is coming at us. And so uh, there, there's no more waiting around to see what's going to happen next uh, in the next decade. If you're not changing, you're probably getting behind. Absolutely. And, and that, that means that you know innovation is not one big bet that you do every now and then. It's a constant activity. And there are different types of innovation. Efficiency innovation to improve what you have, but if you only do that, you're going to more efficiently die with your dying business model. <laughs> what you also need to do is sustaining and breakthrough innovation, which is all about inventing the future. I think most companies are pretty good when it comes to efficiency innovation and pretty bad at breakthrough innovation because they're stuck in their old business model. You know, think of the car industry. Tesla had to disrupt them so they would move. They would still be stuck in the same space, right? But that's changing. Now you see companies like Ping An um, in China that are replicating the same thing that we see at Amazon, the same thing that we see in the startup world, moving from traditional companies to something more radical, and they're constantly reinventing themselves. So companies are moving. Not all of them have figured this out yet, but I think we'll see a big change also triggered or accelerated through the crisis that we're seeing now. Yeah. No question. Alex, thanks for joining me. Uh, I love your books. Um, the uh, innovation is uh, Always been important, probably more necessary right now than it's ever been. So hopefully we'll uh, run into you someday when we can both get back out there on the road. I hope so. Thanks for having me, John.